On the western coast of Washington State and British Columbia lies the Salish Sea. Below the surface, engulfed in its emerald green waters, lies a complex, diverse ecosystem. With two major cities, Seattle Vancouver, hugging its waters, this wild space collides head-on with mankind. Two ecotypes, or subspecies of killer whale, call these waters home. The southern resident killer whale, the fish-eating population, and the transient or bigs killer whale, the mammal-eating population. To the untrained eye, these two groups look nearly identical. However, DNA evidence has proven they have not interbred in over 700,000 years. As a result, both have totally different behaviors, diets, and systems of communication. I first came to this mossy ecological paradise where the mountains meet the sea in the summer of 2017, when I moved to the San Juan Islands to intern for a research program called Soundwatch. Run by the Whale Museum in Friday Harbor, I spent my summer collecting critical, long-term data for NOAA. From May to August, I was on the water over 200 hours, counting boats, monitoring vessel disturbances, speaking to recreational boaters, and analyzing marine mammal behavior, specifically focusing on the southern resident killer whales, which include three pods of J, K, and L. But this summer, the summer of 2017, ended up being like nothing anyone had witnessed before. The population was down from 83 individuals the year before to 77. And instead of seeing them nearly every day of the summer, when they're supposed to be growing fat on historically abundant runs of Chinook salmon, I saw them only eight times. In 2018, I returned to the West Coast. Freshly graduated, I got my dream job working on a documentary about these same whales. Co-Extinction Film set out to understand why these whales were disappearing and the complex chain which deeply linked them to their ecosystem. While interviewing over 40 world-renowned scientists, politicians, First Nation leaders, and activists, our team came to understand all the complex pieces going into these whales' disappearance. These whales have many odds going against them, and today only 74 remain. From high levels of toxicity, vessel traffic, and most importantly, their main food source, Chinook salmon, rapidly disappearing, these threats can often be overwhelming. Like the orca, the causes behind the declining number of salmon is a complex one. Ranging from habitat destruction to pollution, there are many factors we must consider when restoring these populations. In this episode, we will explore the connection between orca and salmon, between land and sea. We will learn how forest restoration is helping save orcas and to understand exactly how these terrestrial and marine worlds collide. So hi guys, welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. My name is Serena Simons, the senior producer on the show. And today we have a super awesome episode produced by Tori Obermeyer. Tori, do you want to go ahead and just introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Tori. I'm cinematographer and producer for Co-Extinction Film, which is a documentary about the southern resident killer whales, Chinook salmon, and the interconnectedness of the Salish Sea ecosystem. Awesome. And so my initial, when, when I first listened to this episode, I was like, okay, you know, you set the stage, this beautiful, sweeping, just cinematic view of life out there and you know just just how precious it is to you and I mean it just paints this beautiful picture 
And then we start talking about nothing. I mean, at first glance, it doesn't seem at all related to trees. So do you want to talk a little bit about that bridge between, you know, orcas and the sea and trees and salmon? Absolutely. So yeah, it is super interesting. That's one of the reasons why I love this ecosystem so much, because we have this amazing body of water, the Salish Sea, which connects these amazing forests. So, you know, huge pine trees, evergreens, this lush ferns and environments all funneled by the Salish Sea and all of those nutrients are provided by the Salish Sea. Um, it's just such a beautiful landscape on so many levels with ever, every season it ever changes. And I think that's part of why I love it so much. Absolutely. And, you know, just so, so we we're dealing with two distinct subspecies of orcas. And so I think that was really fascinating too, because we think about like adaptability, right? And we're thinking of like all of these impacts on this particular ecosystem, We've got deforestation, climate change, like loss of um, prey species, just just the whole gambit, right? And so we just think, oh, well, if if we lose one thing, you know, if we lose the salmon, you know, it they'll they'll figure it out. But we have we have a subspecies that you know predominantly preys on mammals, and then a subspecies that predominantly preys on fish. And so when you disrupt that balance, I'm just curious, like. What do you say to people that just have that feeling of like, oh, well, nature will fix itself, you know? You know, I think that is an amazing question and it kind of leads into the complexity of this ecosystem. Everything is so deeply interconnected, you know? You remove one small piece from the equation that you wouldn't think affect it and it can throw off so a, a myriad of things. So, I mean, for another example of something very close by to this area as well, um, we're having issues with our kelp forests because of an overpopulation of sea urchins. Um, kelp forests are so important, not only for, you know, fish habitat, uh, just for a healthy overall underwater ecosystem, but also for the air we breathe. And we're seeing this loss of kelp forest because of an abundance of sea urchins, because of the loss of prey of sea urchins, which are traditionally, you know, in this region, like sea otters or river otters. So it's really interesting to see that prime example of how deeply interconnected everything is. And to go back to the two different ecotypes, I mean, a lot of times people will say, mm-hmm. well, there's still this uh, ecotype of orca and they're doing fine. Why can't these guys? You know, that gets complicated too. Um, They look super similar, but actually in reality, evolutionarily, they are over 700,000 years. uh, They are over 700,000 years evolutionarily separated. So they have not interbred in over 700,000 years. Um, So yeah, it's (laughs) it's just amazing. And there are so many complex complexities in this ecosystem that make it so incredible, so abundant, and so important to understand and protect. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really, really excited about this episode. Um, Do you just briefly want to give us an introduction to your guest today? Absolutely. Uh, I have the pleasure of speaking with Diana Chaplin from One Tree Planted and Dr. Kathleen Giose, who is working with One Tree Planted through Bonneville Environmental Foundation. Um, I'm so excited to show you guys this amazing conversation and all the wonderful things these two women and their organizations are doing to protect orca and salmon habitat. Amazing. I can't wait for our listeners to check this out.
I would love to start uh, just the interview off today just with an introduction from both of you, just maybe telling us a little bit about yourselves and the organizations you're working with, and then with that, the mission of your organizations. Sure. Well, I'll start. Um, thank you so much for having us here. Really glad to be here with you. Uh, my name is Diana, and I am with Reforestation Nonprofit One Tree Planted. Um, and I think it's pretty clear what we do right in our name. We plant trees all over the world. Um, the reason that I love this work so much is because every tree planting project that we do has a really special and unique story. Um, every single one has a unique impact area. We work with local communities. So it's really, really amazing to be part of these restoration initiatives. And I'm Kathleen Gioze. My nickname is Cass. And I work for BEF, which stands for Bonneville Environmental Foundation. I'm a watersheds program director. And or our organization is essentially all about uh, healthy watersheds, renewable energy, and carbon smart um, investments. And we love working with community partners on the ground and have been working with One Tree Planted for around four and a half years now and love them. That is so wonderful. It's amazing to see two incredible organizations working together. Uh, would you guys mind kind of explaining how your two organizations are partnered? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's absolutely been amazing to work with Kathleen. Wow, I didn't realize it's been so long. Um, you know, we have very overlapping objectives, um, and I think that's what ecosystems are really all about. So when you think about an ecosystem, you have water, you have trees, you have wildlife, you have people and all of these things working together. And I think that one of the great things about, you know, being uh, with NGOs and, and whether it's for profit or whatever, but when you're doing something really good, uh, we're all stronger together. And it's all about building coalitions and leveraging each other's unique talents, skills, resources, knowledge. And so I think we began working together because, you know, once we planted, we're really focused on reforestation. And the way that we go about doing this is through an amazing, vast network of local partners on the ground that are each uniquely knowledgeable about the ecology of any particular region and where and why and how restoration might be needed. Uh, and so when we met with Kathleen, I think we started with maybe one sort of small project just to see how it would go. And the relationship ultimately, it comes down to people uh, working together, one success after another, and one project leads to another, and it just becomes bigger. And I think we've just grown together over time. And it's been such a wonderful journey. And now we have this really big project together and it's been amazing. And maybe I exaggerated, maybe it's been three and a half years. <laughs> Sorry, Diana. Close enough. Who knows how long 2020 actually is, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, that is, that is so wonderful. And um, I would love to like talk a little bit more about the kind of success One Tree Planted has had in habitat restoration, and then maybe diving into what that kind of looks like in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so, you know, we started as a pretty small organization and, you know, one thing leading to another, like I just said, I mean, it was when I joined the organization, it was 
our founder and a dream. And I think we had one project at the time and now we've grown. We're on track to planting about 15 million trees in 2020 alone, despite many challenges, including COVID. Um, and so, you know, each project really just has a different focus and that's how we approach restoration ecology as a whole. So in one particular region, we may be planting trees for protecting a watershed. In another project, it may be a focus on carbon sequestration, really focusing on uh, climate. Um, and still yet for another, it might be all about biodiversity or expanding a habitat or connecting forests that might have been disconnected, but now you wanna create a corridor for wildlife. Uh, and of course, we also plant for forest fire restoration. So the way that this happens is really project by project, you know, sometimes it might be something small, 2,000 trees, 5,000 trees, all the way up to a million trees, you know, and sometimes it's over one planting season, other times it might be a multi-year project with multiple stakeholders. And so, you know, we've developed an amazing infrastructure, various criteria, an incredible team that helps to manage and oversee and develop these projects. And working with Kathleen and BEF is also um, a wonderful marriage. So the impact that we can have together stretches across multiple states. And that's where BEF has been such an amazing partner is that now we can really scale up these restoration projects. Um, there's so much more to it and, and I'll let Kathleen take over from there. I guess the, what I'd add is we've been working with One Tree Planted on this initiative, Promise the Pod, for just over a year now. We don't have the final numbers in from the recent Orca Recovery Day, but I believe we're up to close to 900,000 trees and shrubs planted in the last year alone. Actually, now it's like 14 months. Um, that was planted across 28 miles in different uh, regions from British Columbia to Northern California, engaging over 60 partners. And so that kind of hits on one of the key pieces of our model where um, we have in the Pacific Northwest a lot of shared reasons to do this work. And salmon is one, orca are another, people and health and water quality, culture and connection. Um, but it can be really tough for small groups to do all the work it takes to connect to funders and the, you know all aspects of getting the work done. These can be really small organizations intimately tied to their place and their community. And we try to just do one little thing of helping make their job easier to connect to a larger regional story, funders like One Tree Planted and then, you know, other people around the world that care about this beautiful place we live in. That's so incredible. Yeah, I think community-based uh, activism and restoration is so important. So that's so wonderful to see kind of, you know, bigger organizations working with uh, the smaller, more local organizations to make that kind of amazing change happen in whatever ecosystem, you know you're in and especially you know here in the Pacific Northwest that's so incredible and I guess I'd love to kind of ask um you know why orcas um what was one tree planted's um original mission with working with the orcas and uh when did they first kind of hear about what was going on here in the Pacific Northwest 
Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of people would not necessarily make this connection. And we've seen this, you know, on social media and the kinds of questions we get, you know, when we talk about planting trees for orcas, <laughs> they're usually like, wait, what do you mean? They're in the ocean. Um, and so I think one of the first things that really appealed to us is just that profound story of interconnectivity in a way that we all felt needed to be elevated, needed to be explained because, you know, people think of planting a tree and they just have this image in their mind. It's very linear. It's a cute little sapling. You get your hands in the soil, you know, that picture that I think we've all seen many times, but, you know, there's just so much more to the value of reforestation, the value of trees in an ecosystem. So, you know, and I actually, when I first came upon the story, I, I honestly, I confess, I didn't really know about the Pacific Northwest Southern resident orca. Um, I associated whales with Arctic waters. Um, and so this was a little bit of a surprise to me. And then when we really learned about this connection between the forests, the riparian zones, the way that the rivers connect with the ocean, the way that the trees connect with the salmon and the orca, we just realized that there's so much more to this coastal ecosystem. Um, and there's an opportunity here to expand understanding of, of the value of trees and really how everything is just so profoundly connected. So I think it was when we connected with Kathleen and we learned about this project that we instantly said, yes, we have to be a part of this. We have to contribute to making a positive impact. And along the way, we want to take donors, you know, all of the people that get our emails and follow us on social media and all of these, um, you know, a lot of times young people that, that are still learning ecology and the natural world, we wanted to be able to share the story and take people along this journey with us. Um, and so that's what we've done. And it's been such an amazing experience and we've learned so much along the way. And maybe Kathleen can describe a little bit better exactly how the trees and the salmon and the whales are connected. Yeah, totally. So just really simply put, um, trees, kind of our protectors and providers. So, you know, sam or orca is most simply needs salmon. They are starving. There's only 74 individuals remaining, including one pregnant orca, which is very exciting. Um, predominantly Chinook salmon, which historically were these incredible vibrant runs, the biggest, the fattest, the tastiest and through a series of damming, development, uh, deforestation, we've lost tremendous habitat. Those runs have diminished incredibly. And um, that in combination with kind of the sea world trade, we've just seen a devastation in these real beloved populations. These are incredibly intelligent animals once you see one, you will never not love them. And, you know, they capture the hearts of people around the world, partly because there are orca all around the world. The Southern residents are special, they're fish eaters. Um, and so they are more vulnerable to that collapse of the Chinook salmon runs. But back to the trees. So they protect the waters from too much sediment coming in from toxins and pollutants coming in through pesticides and other 
uh, inputs. They provide habitat for fish. They provide inputs for the insects um, that become food for baby salmon. They provide the structure in the streams that if you have ever gone fishing, you really look for that complexity to find the diversity of deep pools that offer cold water and refuge. And we don't often think about it, but salmon in the streams, they're not just then um, good to go. You know, they have a lot of predators in the waters. So having diverse habitats and places for them to hide, that's really what the trees do. At least they play a huge role in that. Um, and so they are kind of the nurseries for the salmon runs. And they also help keep the water clean uh, so that downstream people, salmon, orca, you know, every other kind of living thing um, can be healthier and, and thrive. Well, there are other components to the overall orca habitat restoration beyond the trees. So maybe Kathleen, you can share a little bit about that. Well, the three threats to the, the three primary threats that have been identified are um, insufficient food, noise, pollution from noise, and then toxins in the food chain. And so um, noise is all about vessel traffic and can relate to uh, shopping online and um, you know LNG pipeline expansions, you name it, anything that requires vessel traffic, even, um, you know, what you call it for fun, leisure, leisure boating, yeah, recreation. big motors. So they are hunting, you know, through using sound and with that uh, noise increase, it makes their job of finding the salmon that much harder. Then I, I thought you mentioned this, Diana, and I'm forgetting now, but as the orca begin to starve, you know, they rely on fat reserves and that release of fat releases a flush of toxins that have bioaccumulated in their fat reserves because they are also concentrated in the fish. And, you know, key strategies for abating that relate to everything from, you know, smart farm practices to stopping urban pollution to improving wastewater treatment facilities, um, lots and lots of other actions. And then lastly, the Chinook, the increasing food, which we've talked about, um, habitat restoration and habitat access are key. So planting trees, taking down barriers that block fish movement, um, doing everything we can in this key window we have where, you know, some are predicting the entire disappearance of salmon runs in many key watersheds in the next 20, 50 years. And it's a real threat that People's children and grandchildren will see the day when the salmon are not running in the streams where, you know, generations and generations, millennia have fished before. So um, many, many strategies needed, many people needed to get on board in different ways. Yeah, and there's also a cultural connection to, to the people of the region. Orcas have a very profound significance to Native American cultures. Um, they're represented in visual art and, and oral traditions. They're known as guardians of the sea and they have, they travel in pods and they stay together um, their whole lives with these pods. They hunt together, they raise their young together. So they come to represent family and community in, in a very strong way. And I think there's something so beautiful about that that we can all learn from and, and benefit from as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think it is so interesting to look at killer whales specifically. And I think that's why people love them so much is because, uh, you know, they're so socially developed, even in ways that would be hard for us to comprehend, which is amazing. And I think people really draw that connection between family and structural social bonds and they see that. Um, and it makes them just even more inspired to protect, uh, protect those species like that. Um, especially working on uh, co-extinction, the documentary I'm working on, uh, specifically, you know, like it sounds co-extinction, uh, orcas and salmon and how interconnected the whole ecosystem is uh, to one another. It's uh, especially, this film specifically, you know, orcas are really, I think a lot of the times what bring people in, you know, um, they're the exciting, <laughs> beautiful animals. But then, you know, as you guys were speaking about when you dive deeper into it and learn about salmon and how absolutely integral they are to the ecosystem around them. Um, from orcas to <laughs> even kelp forests, you know, it's all so deeply interconnected and important. Even the littlest things, you know, <laughs> it's, all, it's all so deeply interconnected. Um, especially, you know, I've, I've heard too, I'm not sure, you can probably speak to this, but um, the connection between salmon and trees, isn't there, if I'm, correct, correct me if I'm mistaken, but the DNA of salmon can be found in trees along the west coast? Yeah, so there's been many studies uh, um, that have, you know, scientists kind of try to look at, you know, the ecology of trees, what keeps different tree communities healthy, where the balance of key nutrients come from. And what folks are learning is that salmon carcasses, you know, post spawning, the salmon die and their bodies remain. They provide essential, what they call marine derived nutrients to trees. And, um, you know, more to be seen on what the declining numbers of salmon mean and what they mean, diminished reach of those salmon. But yeah, study after study shows these nutrients are key to tree health and vitality. Yeah, it's all full circle. <laughs> I, I so appreciate you. I, that was my next question was kind of breaking down the connection between, you know, uh, salmon, orcas and trees. So thank you <laughs> for for both of you for um, bringing up those really interesting uh, points and interesting context. Um, I would also love to ask you guys a little bit more about um, this ecosystem in particular, maybe something that has inspired you while working on it, or maybe a really uh, interesting aspect of this uh, ecosystem or this project in particular, if you guys want to share. Yeah, I think for me, it's been um, just that connection between the terrestrial and the marine and where does one end and the other begin really when it comes to all of these wildlife species and plants um, you know we don't have too many other projects that are similar um, the only thing that comes to mind is mangrove trees because they're also these sort of like coastal um, coastal creatures, I would say. They're not creatures really, but they have these long roots that almost walk. But I think that for me, anything that sort of crosses these boundaries and blurs the boundaries between and within natural ecosystems, I personally find really fascinating and interesting and inspiring. And it's a really great reminder of, you know, this theme of connection. I can't help but bring it up again, but just how 
how we are all one and how everything is you can't you can't touch or look at one thing without really pulling at the thread of, of all the things that are connected to it so it's been really wonderful and also just being part of this journey with Kathleen with our many partners um, to sort of see it go from from idea from initial execution to now we've planted almost a million trees uh, we're seeing that impact and really it, it's going to take many years to ultimately see that impact but we have to be patient and there's lessons to be learned in that patience as well we have to think in tree time and ecosystem time and that's very valuable too i love that diana and i would add you know it is heart-wrenching and a lot of environmental work can be that but it also sometimes feels like the stories we tell have been being told for many, many decades. And to be able to follow the lives of individual whales and feel, you know, connected to them. It is, it's heart-wrenching. It feels important. It gives drive. And then the other part is it's a rare opportunity for so many environmental groups to be actively in service of tribes, in service of tribal treaty rights, um, not advancing their own agenda solely, you know, which is a painful you know, part of a pattern that is hopefully changing, but really listening and, and hearing the, the value and meaning of these beings to the many different tribes, as Diana had mentioned, but also to really act for the greater good and for a kind of a, a greater voice than that just of foresters, ecologists, and restoration people. This is something that has been a couple hundred years in the making, and it is a collective responsibility to do some serious radical caretaking. Absolutely, and it, it takes everyone, which you know, I love, again, love to reiterate um, how many people you all have brought together to work on this incredible cause um, of re restoring wild places, which is so, so important to have that connection and amazing to see people connecting to the environment as well. And Diana, you can scold me because I know you, you all really tell positive stories <laughs> and believe in the positivity, which I love. But I also sometimes I just have to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, if, if we're going to go there in this conversation, <laughs> it's, it's true. It is, it's very disheartening to see ecosystem collapse, to see deforestation, to see people um, continuing to degrade our precious environments despite so much evidence showing that we should be doing the opposite through conserving and restoring as quickly as possible um, and especially with something like a beloved wildlife species um, so many people just feel this profound connection and yeah it can be it can be sad there is I think sadness filled in our work every day but I will say that a great remedy for the sadness is getting off your butt and doing yeah. something because what's the alternative? You're gonna sit in a corner and cry about it. That's totally. not, 
you know, so that's like, that makes me get up and say, at least I am doing everything that I possibly can. Um, I get to work with amazing people like Kathleen and many others that just dedicate you know, our careers, our lives to this work. Um, and we're not alone. And there's so many people that are not in the environmental space or the NGO space, but that believe profoundly in this mission. And that's where our donors come in. You know, that's really a whole lot of people donating a dollar here, $5 there, $20 there, because they understand the value here and what we need to do through collective action. So, you know, when I'm sad, I'm like, all right, well, those people don't want me sitting around. So now we have to, we got to, you know, roll up our sleeves and get our hands in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, especially, you know, working on a documentary about these orcas and about salmon. Um, it is so hard because there's a really, really thin line that you have to balance between being realistic with your audience and then also, you know, yeah. uh, making sure that it's still remaining positive and still igniting that hope in people. So it doesn't feel like something that's hopeless, but instead it feels like something that, you know, if we all get together right now and if we all put anything, um, you know, any effort we're able to put into it, uh, we can all create amazing, incredible change in the world around us, no matter what that cause is. Yeah. 100%. Wonderful. And, you know, with that being said, I'd love to kind of, uh, you know, leave it open-ended to you guys, if you guys had, you know, maybe one mission for the people listening today, or one uh, goal for the people listening today, if they could do something to create that kind of change, uh, what would that be? Well, I'll go first. Um, I would say, honestly, just look around wherever you live, wherever you are, uh, and understand what's what is needed around you. You know, there's watershed organizations in every single state. Um, there's a whole lot of local good that you can do from picking up some trash to joining a local organization to planting a tree, of course. Uh, with one tree planted, you can do that for a dollar. Um, but I think also making that local impact and really being involved because you might find that there's really not that many people that are looking at your community and advocating for the environment close to you. And that's where honestly you can make the biggest impact because you are there. You can go to you know city level committee meetings if you've got the time for that or just go and volunteer on the weekend if that's all you can do. Um, yeah, look around local. It feels like we do have a little bit of a renewed opportunity to do some big stuff again, which is incredibly exciting. Um, you know, sometimes I'll wonder why don't even my good friends care as much about this as I do? <laughs> what do I need to say to them? What, and you know, no one, we all care about different things, which is beautiful. Um, but I think what Diana had said earlier about the kind of tactile nature of tree planting, that's what keeps me back to the tree planting is that it is a source of connection and so I guess one thing I would say to do is find those things, whatever it is that connects you to cause, whether it's orca, trees, education, pharmaceutical reform, like toxic waste cleanup, you name it, find that thing that brings connection, invest in that and get moving. <laughs> Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. 
Um, and I just want to say how grateful I am for both of you and all of the amazing, incredible work that you are doing and the amount of inspiration I've gotten from just this conversation alone with you all has just been so incredible. So I just really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the work you're doing. Uh, Tori, would you, would you be game to share with us kind of your thoughts on this? Because you're so intimately involved in all this. Oh, uh, you know, absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to getting emotional about the work we're doing, um, gosh, I can't tell you how many times I've cried in the middle of interviews and um, how, yeah, how many nights I've lost sleep over, you know, what's going on specifically in this ecosystem. Um, but, you know, that's uh, exactly why I chose what I wanted to do. What's, that's why I want to be an environmental journalist, an environmental storyteller. It's because, you know, that's the way I saw my, you know, impact being uh, the way I could create the most impact, you know, sharing with as many people as possible. And that's why I, you know, I'm so excited to work on the documentary that I'm working on Coextinction um, to hopefully get it out to as many people around and, you know, create change and create, you know, inspired communities. And even if it's, you know, not necessarily orcas, even if it's just looking at something in your own backyard and finding a way to create change or, take that uh, environment and make it a little bit better than the way you found it. Um, I think that's just so important. And it's hard, it's not easy, <laughs> it's exhausting work. It can be really depressing in a lot of ways, especially when it just feels like you're kind of banging your head against a wall. But, <laughs> you know, I just think there's nothing more worth it than creating healthy environment for the future, for generations to come, not just for ourselves, but for the future of this planet as well and not just our species <laughs> for the <laughs> millions of species that inhabit this beautiful planet i kind of wanted to ask you about that that partnership that you pretty much just mentioned um so you know at first glance it sort of seems like one tree planted is just sort of this this odd couple with the, you know, the, the content of this episode, but when you dig into it, I mean, not even that far, it makes complete sense. So do you think that, you know, this new, there, the, that there's going to be a new wave of these kinds of partnerships as we try to solve some of these big picture issues and big ecosystem issues moving forward? You know, absolutely. And seeing organizations like these are exactly what I think uh, the world needs, you know, getting communities involved, getting communities excited and engaged and working on a local level to inspire positive change. Um, I think, I mean, and I can speak from a personal level on this, feeling personally involved and personally responsible for positive change is such a powerful, um, such a powerful tool for conservation. And, you know, no matter where you are, no matter what your backyard might look like, there's restoration like this going on all over the world. And there are so many incredible ways you can get involved. Absolutely. And, and as you speak on community engagement, I, I thought it was great that they mentioned the indigenous um, coordination that's happening as well. And just kind of going back to square and and starting to listen, right? And I just think that that's kind of a trend with a lot of organizations now is um, kind of going back to that traditional ecological knowledge and 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 really finding solutions with um, indigenous practice and 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 in indigenous connection and spirituality too, because that gets people to buy in, right? When we really care about 
you know, um, a species, be it a, an animal or a plant, you know, I, I just think that that connection is so important moving forward. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think involving Indigenous communities and First Nations are so incredibly important, so incredibly vital when we're talking about not only conservation, but, you know, policy making and everything that goes into, you know, creating awesome change. Awesome. Okay, great. Um, and finally, I do want to ask you kind of like to wrap up, like you, you mentioned a little bit about, um, co-extinction, the film, but maybe you can, um, give us a little bit more information, some more details about that film. Like what can we expect to come out of that film? And, you know, it just, it, it made me really excited and I really want to see it now. <laughs> Thank you so much for asking. Yeah. Um, I'm incredibly excited to be working on this amazing film with an awesome team. Uh, currently, we're in post-production, so we're working on wrapping up the film right now. Uh, but the film specifically just focuses on the Southern residents and, you know, we've said it so many times, but the interconnectedness of this ecosystem. So our two directors, Gloria and Elena, um, are featured in the film and they kind of dive into this issue first trying to figure out what's going on with the orcas, but then from there realize that it's just this huge deeply interconnected, extremely complex issue. So we talked to, you know, world-renowned scientists, First Nation leaders, politicians, the list goes on. But we, if you'd like to follow us on Instagram or Facebook or check out our website, it's all Coextinction Film. So our website is coextinctionfilm.com and everywhere else you can find us at Coextinction Film. Amazing. And I love all the women that are working on this film too. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that too. You know, we always talk about when we were filming that, uh, orcas are matriarchal and so much of this film felt matriarchal. I mean, even this podcast, so many women. I love it. Amazing. Tori, thank you so much for this episode. It really has been a pleasure. Um, and you know, I, I know you're gonna, you know, this, this film's going to be amazing and, um, we'll definitely include, you know, all the information to check out One Tree Planted and the Co-Extinction film in our show notes so that our listeners can check it out too. But thank you so much for this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was such an honor to be on. This is Tori Obermeyer, producer of this episode. This episode was co-produced by Serena Simmons and music featured today was It's Okay by Fireflies and Life Doesn't Escape Us by Sapojo. The orca calls you heard at the beginning of this episode were actual calls from J-Pod, captured on Ocean Network's Canada Hydrophone. Thank you so much for listening.